Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the criminal trial stemming from the tragic death of Ahmad Arbery, a 25-year-old black man who was pursued by three white men, Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryan, and was eventually shot to death by one of those men, Travis McMichael. With verdicts of guilty rendered against the three defendants, we continue our complete coverage of the trial from gavel to gavel. In our last episode, Georgetown Law professor, MSNBC analyst, and one of the nation's most frequently consulted scholars on issues of race and criminal justice, Paul Butler, joined us as we began our review of the subtext and efficacy of the closing arguments in this trial. In this episode, we conclude that discussion. That's coming up right after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We concluded our last episode with Paul Butler offering his thoughts on Jason Sheffield's closing on behalf of Travis McMichael. We begin this episode with Paul's assessment of the controversial closing by Laura Hogue on behalf of Greg McMichael. Let's move on to Laura Hogue's closing argument, which gained a lot of attention because of her comment about Ahmaud Arbery's long, dirty toenails. Hogue began her closing argument by talking about the work her father did as an insurance salesman to provide a neighborhood community life for his family. And again, as a white person who is of a similar age, I believe, to Laura Hogue. I saw in that a call for, if not jury nullification, a sense of solidarity with the McMichaels among the 11 white jurors and a request for empathy for Greg McMichael as a man who was trying to bring safety and security to his community. And again, a dog whistle for the white jurors to say that while the law may say he's guilty, it's disproportionate to what this man's intentions were. Did you see any of that in Laura Hogue's closing argument? And, you know, in a larger sense, what did you make of the rest of her argument and specifically her invocation of Ahmaud Arbery's toenails? So if Travis McMichael is a dressed-down David Duke, then the lawyers for Gregory McMichael and Mr. Bryant are slightly gussied up Byron Bela Beckwith. They tried this case like old school Southern racists, dealing the race card from the bottom of the deck. So when Ms. Hogue talked about Mr. Arbery's long, dirty toenails, I think we all heard what she wanted us to hear, long, dirty, black toenails. So when you add this to the fact that they wanted the jury of Bubba's and they wanted to control which black people got to attend the public trial. And when as a result of their racist outburst, 
black folks and others showed up outside the courtroom to protest. They wanted a mistrial based on that. It's clear that the strategy was race-based jury nullification. I guess they look back to the Emmett Till playbook. And it was something of a Hail Mary pass. And like most Hail Mary passes, it, it doesn't work. It's funny because I was having a review session with my students today, preparing them for the criminal law final exam. And I told the students, if a question asks, what's the best defense? It doesn't necessarily mean that that defense is going to be successful. All that means is based on the evidence, um, what's the, the best chance? You got to say something if you're a defense attorney. What do you say? And so I get that these defense attorneys faced a tough trial. I, I get that, in a sense, the odds were against their clients being found not guilty, although race often throws off conventional wisdom and conventional odds keeping. But anybody looking at the evidence would think that this case was a slam dunk for the prosecution. And so I understand them feeling that they had to do what they had to do, especially as somebody who has been a critic of our criminal legal system for many years, especially when you look at the fact that it's typically poor people and people of color who are defendants in cases. They deserve all of the protections that they can get and all of the due process. So I'm hesitant to say that there's a line that a defense attorney should not cross. But if out there somewhere, there is this mythical line where even in representing zealously your client, you just don't go that low. I think that the lawyers for Mr. Bryant and Gregory McMichael, they went past that line. I only want to touch upon one part of Kevin Goss closing, which is that in his presenting of William Roddy Bryan as sort of an accidental participant in all of this, what struck me was that there was a very fine line between the neighbor who actually called 911 initially and was carrying his gun, Matt Albenzi. There's a very fine line between Matt Albenzi being on trial for murder and Roddy Bryan being on trial for murder. Obviously, Roddy Bryan tried to run Ahmaud Arbery off the road. He was guilty of false imprisonment and attempt to commit false imprisonment and of aggravated assault and therefore earned his guilty verdicts. I wonder if you could reflect more generally on the felony murder statute as it relates to Roddy Bryan's conviction. So first, let's think about sentencing in Georgia and how for the crimes that they are convicted of, when the judge sentences these three felons, these three murderers, the only discretion the judge has is between whether they get life with parole or life without parole. And even if the judge grants them the possibility of parole, they have to first serve 30 years in prison. That's one of the harshest punishments for murder in the United States which means it's one of the harshest punishments for murder in the world, since the U.S. tends to have tougher sentences than many other places. 
I want to say that that sentencing scheme was not designed for people like the defendants in this case, that white men, especially middle-aged white men, were not the murderers that Georgia lawmakers had in mind when they passed these tough sentencing laws. And of course, in my book, Chokehold Policing Black Men, I argue that if you look at a lot of practices in American criminal justice, the prototype accused person, criminal inmate is a a Black man. When we look at felony murder laws, I think that there's more evidence that harshly punitive laws probably aren't intended for white folks. And I say that in part because the felony murder law is pretty draconian. I mentioned a while ago that when you get locked up, you don't say it's for felony murder or malice murder. You just say it's for murder. And for felony murder, all you have to do to be convicted of murder is to commit what's called the underlying felony. In this case, one of them was false imprisonment. And if somebody dies while you're committing that underlying felony, you go down for murder. And lots of my types, legal scholars, and then people who are are judges, they don't like felony murder rules because you get punished for a crime that you didn't intend to commit, and you get punished quite harshly since the punishment is for murder. And the United States got the felony murder rule from England. England got rid of it a long time ago because they don't think it's fair. France and Germany, they never had it because they don't think it's fair. But U.S. lawmakers, they love it. Almost every American jurisdiction has a felony murder rule. And again, the effect is to water down what's required to convict someone of murder. And to the extent that especially Travis and George McMichael fancy themselves as these hardcore law and order dudes. I guess you could say it's the chicken coming home to roost for Travis. He and the other defendants now have to deal with one of the harshest components of our criminal law, the felony murder rule. So if any defendant had a chance of not being found guilty or having some of the charges thrown out. It was Roddy Bryant. He didn't have the baggage that the shooter Travis McMichael had or that Gregory McMichael had in his way over the top efforts to take the law in his own hands. And that's why in her closing on rebuttal, Ms. Danikowski saved some of her best shots for Roddy Bryant, including reminding the jurors of his comment that he had cornered Mr. Arbery with his car. And to the extent that Roddy Bryant might not have been in it to enforce the law, he didn't have the same vigilante, wannabe cop aspirations that the other defendants seem to have. It almost makes it worse. It almost makes it seem like Roddy Bryant was along for the sport, that when Gregory and Travis asked him to help hunt down this black man running. Roddy was all in. And I think that 
the prosecution effectively conveyed that to the jury in its closing. There was also a suggestion from Mr. Bryant's lawyer that his client is not the brightest bulb on the tree. (laughs) I'd say that's consistent with the evidence, but that's not a defense. It's not a defense to murder in a court of law. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Moving on to Prosecutor Dunikowski's rebuttal, I was struck by a couple of things in it. Obviously, much of the rebuttal was spent explaining to the jurors why citizen's arrest law did not apply in this case. But one of the pieces of video that she called attention to was the body camera footage from Officer Roush, who showed up at the under-construction site at 220 Satilla Drive on the night of February 11th. And in that video, you can hear Officer Roush explain to both Travis and Greg McMichael that nothing's been stolen from this property. We didn't hear a lot of attention called to this video during the course of the trial. Obviously, it was entered into evidence. And Prosecutor Dunikowski didn't call a lot of attention to it during her opening statement or during the first initial closing argument. But I thought it was very powerful that she presented it to the jury in this context as they're examining any probable cause that Travis and Greg McMichael may have had to believe a felony may have been committed and to demonstrate for the jurors that in fact they were aware that nothing had been stolen from that site. Was there anything from Dunikowski's rebuttal specifically that you found particularly impactful, Paul? I found the whole thing impactful. I found the closing statement and the rebuttal very powerful. Uh, According to reports, when Ms. Donikowski finished her rebuttal and after the jury was instructed, she walked back into the room where Mr. Arbery's family members were waiting, waiting now for their verdict. And those family members applauded Ms. Donikowski. They said, Linda, you go, girl. They, I think, recognized appropriately that she done a fine job, even, again, when she made some choices that another prosecutor might not have made. And I thought it was significant that Ms. Donikowski received this show of support from Mr. Arbery's family members before the jury had returned its verdict. And I think that she deserved those accolades. There's lots of tough strategic decisions a prosecutor has to make when you represent the government, you have the, the burden of proof. And because of that, you get to be the first person who the jury hears from, and you get to be the last. So you're the first when you make your opening statement, you go first with your closing statement, and then the defense gets to make some closing arguments. And then the prosecutor typically will reserve some few minutes for a rebuttal. But the rebuttal is the last time the 
jury hears from any of the lawyers. So you want to make it as effective as possible. And in a rebuttal, under the law, you can only respond to what the defense said in its closing argument. So you can't insert new evidence or testimony or arguments. But at the same time, because it's your last shot in front of the jury, you want to leave them with something that's memorable. You don't want it to sound like you're saying the same things over and over again. And in fact, the prosecution had been saying the same things over and over again, that there's no evidence that Mr. Arbery committed any crime on the day that the defendants killed him, that all Mr. Arbery was doing was jogging when those two pickup trucks started chasing him, that none of the defendants ever told Mr. Arbery why they were trying to stop him. On the day that they killed him, they never told the police anything about citizens' arrest. By the rebuttal, the jurors had heard those statements over and over. And now the prosecution wants to remind them one last time, once the incriminating admissions from Travis and the statements from the police officers that, and from the homeowner, from the property owner, to be ringing in their ears. And so I thought, again, the prosecution, Ms. Donikowski, did an effective job of reminding the jurors of all of that through evidence that it had offered but hadn't really played up. It was fair to present that evidence as rebuttal to the denials that we heard from the defense in their closing. So once again, Ms. Donikowski showed us how it's done in a rebuttal. You don't want to piss off the judge and have him yell at you in front of the jury by going into evidence that wasn't part of the rebuttal. But you do want to go out with a bang. You want to give the jurors something to chew on. And that's what she did. This will be our last session together about the trial of Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryan. And I think it's a good opportunity for you to reflect on how if a similar set of facts happened in a black neighborhood where three black men chased a white man and that white man ended up dead, how that outcome would have come out in the state of Georgia and what that difference says about the nature of our criminal legal process in America generally and in Georgia specifically. Criminal trials are not designed to be instruments of social change. They are about bringing individual wrongdoers to justice. Sometimes we try to glean something about social progress from verdicts. So what we learned is that in Glenn County, Georgia, in a trial in which three white men hunted down and killed a black man, that those men were convicted by a virtually all-white jury. And in Georgia, in the South, in the United States, that counts as progress. And so if the question is, what if the races of the defendants and victim were flipped? How would it have come out in Georgia if three black men had hunted down and killed a white man? I don't know. I suspect that it would have been an easier case for the prosecution to bring. I suspect that black defendants would, like 95% of people who are prosecuted, plead guilty rather than go to trial and risk more punishment. 
So I look at the verdict in this case as a sign that, well, I just hesitate to make any kind of pronouncements, global pronouncements, or extract any cosmic meaning, or really much of a micro analysis about what this means other than in one case, prosecutors proved a case to be under reasonable doubt and jurors did the right thing and convicted. Because we also know that it took two months for the defendants to be charged at all. We know that when the cops showed up on the day that these defendants murdered Mr. Arbery, not only were the defendants not arrested, but Travis was literally instructed by a police officer to go home and wash Mr. Arbery's blood off of his body. So if after all that, there's a conviction, it's not a moment to celebrate. It's a moment to say about time. It's a moment to say, well, what's next? But it's a resolution. It's an important resolution to a specific controversy. What it means in terms of our nation, what it means in terms of white folks, I don't know. Well, on that uncertain and ambivalent note, I want to thank you, Paul, for the time you've spent with us and the incredible insight you've offered into this tragic event. And thank you, Carrie, for the deep dive that you've done in this historic and important case. I think it's a real public service. I appreciate that. Take care. Bye-bye. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. Join us in our next episode as we begin an in-depth analysis of the post-verdict sentencing hearing, including the victim's impact statements by members of Ahmaud Arbery's family and the sentencing statement made by Judge Timothy Walmsley. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our consulting producer is Paul Butler. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty the killing of Ahmad Arbery. <laughs>